increasingly value is moving from product features ownership to interactions, transactions, community, you know, and experiences. And so I think once we figure out where value is traveling, that will give us some insight into how we want to organize to produce that value. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Whether it's from external events such as COVID-19 or a market crash, inflection points are inevitable for any organization. The key is to not remain complacent, but to keep moving, innovate, and learn what the new strategy playbook looks like in a complex and nonlinear world. Today we're joined by a true legend in this space, Rita McGrath. Rita is widely recognized as a premier expert on leading innovation and growth during times of uncertainty. She is a best-selling author, speaker, and a long-time professor at Columbia Business School. Rita has received the number one achievement award for strategy from the prestigious Thinkers 50, and has been consistently named one of the top 10 management thinkers in its biannual ranking. Find out more about Rita McGrath and her work in the show notes to this episode. Now, join our conversation as we explore the positive and negative impacts of inflection points for organizations and markets. We also uncover discovery-driven leadership, irreversible versus reversible decisions, responsibility towards local communities as a key principle for organizing value creation, and much, much more. This discussion testifies the true depth of the rabbit hole of the future of organizing. But before jumping into the episode, we'd like to ask you a favor. If you could go to Apple Podcast app and rate the show, that would be amazing. This will allow more people to discover it. Thank you so much in advance. Now, without further ado, let's go with Rita McGrath. Hello everyone, Simone Cicero here, as always, uh, your co-host of the Boundless Conversations podcast. And today, like uh, almost always, uh, here with me, there is Stina Hekila, my usual co-host. Hi everyone, really happy to be here. And with us today, we have, uh, I mean, again, I'm not uh, exaggerating this time like I did in the past for some special guests, but we have a real legend of strategy with us today, uh, Rita McGrath. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us, Rita. We really look forward to to get your insights for to our community. And um, you know, we had this uh, fairly productive preparation calls with with, with you, and uh, uh, you know, and we basically with Stina in preparation of this conversation, we we were referring to two uh, little pieces of uh, all of your work or insights uh, that we used in the recent white paper that we uh, released in November 20 last year. And uh, uh, these two elements that we feel are a good starting point for this conversation are essentially two main uh, aspects of the uh, that we identified in the research so far. And one, on one hand, it's this idea that uh, the economy is evolving in a, into a digital context where, as you said recently, when you can transact more readily, uh, you can start to see market-based transactions where you used to have only firm-based transactions. So this is one key point that, of course, we are researching since ages. You know, this is our bread and butter, I would say, marketplaces, ecosystems, platforms that are overcoming the traditional firm. Uh, and on the other hand, you also captured, and um, this is something that uh, you captured, of course, uh, increasingly in the last few years in your work, this idea of uh, inflection points. And more specifically, this idea that even uh, the pandemic you know, has been, to some extent, uh, a very tangible and, and, to some extent, a very big inflection point that uh, uh, brings us to uh, uh, reconcile, I would say, this idea of technological development uh, with an idea of uh, having to rethink also the social compact around work, the uh, the role of organizations. So having said that, what is, uh, in your words, the new strategy playbook that organizations need to uh, develop for uh, and institutions for this uh, new world? Well, I think the first observation I would make is that a lot of the tools and ideas uh, that we use as the foundational um, 
frameworks of strategy really came from a very different time and place. If you think about um, a lot of the original strategy work, you know, things like um, uh, five forces analysis and the BCG matrix and those kinds of tools, they were really emerged in the 70s, mostly, sometimes the 60s, mostly in an American context. And if you think about what's changed in the world since then, uh, back then, there were very strong barriers to entry for many um, industries. Um, the industry was considered to be the focal point of analysis. The uh, Your fate you know, was really finding an attractive position in an attractive industry and then minding your entry barriers and, and, and maintaining your business. And what's happened since then is clearly the world has globalized. Um, you know, it's possible now to economically manufacture things, you know, tens of thousands of miles away from where they're actually going to be consumed. That, that was new in history. And it was really facilitated by the invention of the container shipping vehicle in the late 50s. Uh, of course, you have the internet, which has introduced all kinds of connections and dropped the price of communications radically. And you have new forms of competition, so new new competitors uh, and so forth. And so what I've argued is that this has the effect of making it much more difficult to sustain a competitive advantage once you've achieved one. Uh, not everywhere, but in many, any, many parts of the economy. And so that what you've got is the necessity to create new advantages, certainly to exploit them, but then to be astute as to when they have eroded in their ability to deliver uh, success to you uh, so that you need to get better at several things, among them disengagement. So the elements of the new playbook are we need to be thinking about being in motion rather than stability being the normal thing. You can think of that as being agile. We need to get much better at disengaging from things in a healthy way. So good strategists decide what they're not going to do as much as what they are going to do then we need to get much more smart about resource allocation. And in fact, I was just talking to a CEO yesterday who was saying, you know, she's very concerned that her firm is very good at the core business. But when it comes to investing resources in the possible future business, she's very concerned that they're not just not doing a good job of that. And I think that's a really core element of the new strategy playbook. Um, fourth, we need innovation as a proficiency. And a lot of people think it's getting great ideas. That's usually not the problem. Um, if you really want to build innovation as a proficiency, you need to get good at good ideas, but you also need to be able to incubate them and you need to be able to accelerate them so that they get into the market in a healthy way. And unless you've got proficiency at all three of those activities, you know, you're really relying on your last competitive advantage. You're not creating uh, new ones. This, of course, has enormous implications for leadership because increasingly leadership needs to be what I call discovery driven. And I elaborate on that in the new work, which is, you know, the leader that says, don't bring me a problem without having a solution or, you know, don't I don't want to hear bad news or makes it clear they don't want to hear uncomfortable news. That leader is going to be left out of vital flows of information that they need. And finally, I think all of this has huge implications for talent uh, to the point where uh, Chris Yeh and uh, Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn wrote a wonderful book called The Alliance, and they talk about a tour of duty career, where instead of signing on with a company and having a lifelong association with that company, you might sign on for a tour of duty, you might exploit that for you know three, four, five years, but then when it comes to an end, you may decide that it's better for you to part ways and go into a different uh, mode, and that's okay. But it has big implications for HR and talent and how you manage um, you know, people and how you how you think about assembling your talent for a given strategic initiative. It's it's becoming much more like making a movie or or you know the Hollywood model than the traditional industrial model. So I think those are all some very specific things that are different today. Well, this uh, uh, resonates a lot, you know, with uh, also our recent work and what uh, what um, you know. If I can if I can think about our work on the entrepreneurial ecosystem enabling organization, or this idea that uh, a modern organization is made of small nodes, small micro entrepreneurial units 
that uh, you know to to for example to resonate with one of the points that you made you know this idea of becoming better resource allocation and generally becoming you know more uh, able to uh, you know uh, invest and disinvest from projects for example and uh, we see a lot of resonance you know with this idea of uh, an organization when there is no proper budgeting everything is pretty much uh, customer driven and uh, you pay your own pro- you create your own profit and loss so that's a kind of a extreme way to address uh, from a strategic point of view, uh, they need to make uh, organizations that are, as you said, you know, discovery-driven. And totally ba- totally echo no, your point on being this being extremely challenging for, uh, uh, for, for leadership. So in, t- in practical uh, uh, terms, in terms of, for example, organizational shape, uh, what do you think is going to be or what are the trends that you think uh, uh, organizations can embrace to actualize some of the points that you mentioned? Well, some of the uh, theory, right, is that you want to be pushing uh, decision-making rights as close to the stimulus from outside the organization as you can, um, while using processes to make sure the whole thing doesn't fly apart. So, you know, if I have a challenge from a customer or a competitor to something interesting, you know, I don't, I want, don't want to have to wait for the information about that to travel you know, tens of people away before I get a decision and then things come back to me and now I can take action. You really want to empower people as much as you can to make decisions at as low a level as you can. Now, that has really important implications because it implies a lack of formal controls. You know, it it implies you're going to have to give up on some of the the limits and practices that many organizations use to control people's behavior and try to get a consistent outcome. But what we find is if you can use process and and context controls, then you have much less need to worry about, you know, imposing a specific, let's say, you know, your your authorization limit is a thousand euro or something. Um, That's an example of of a control that just is very narrow and may not suit a particular situation. So let's say that you're an incumbent trying to compete with something that a startup is doing. Well, you know, if you've got to wait around for procurement to make their decision on whether you can spend 5,000 euro rather than 1,000, it's just going to slow you down. And it's an example of the kind of things that bog you down. So among the big challenges are how do we, how do we keep control in a sensible way without hamstringing the um, the operations of the company? I think a, a, a second design principle uh, so the first design principle is really pushing rights of decision as close to the stimulus required by the organization uh, as possible. I think the second design principle is that um, you, you want to align your incentives as much as possible around what's actually a good outcome for the organization. And in many organizations, that doesn't happen. Um, and it doesn't happen for a lot of reasons. It happens. You know, the organizations develop silos, which have their own territories and their own perceived interests. Um, and so when that starts to become a big factor in what makes people behave, that creates a real problem because now what they're doing is optimizing their political fortunes rather than doing what's really best for the their constituencies in the organization. So that's something to really watch against, especially as an organization gets larger. Right. Um, there seems to be an interesting friction, I would say, between, uh, you know, uh, besides the last point that you mentioned, which is uh, uh, totally resonant with this idea of uh, avoiding, you know, for what is possible to accumulate uh, this organizational debt. Uh, and so to actually avoid for people to have the possibility to hide behind, uh, you know, uh, some kind of uh, power structure or something like that. Uh, but on the other I uh, on the other hand, I think the most interesting part is uh, it's uh, your hint towards uh, uh, this a little bit of friction between control and coherence. So coherence seems to be something that uh, is uh, um, uh, something that we can uh, we should uh, uh, look for. On the other hand, uh, control is something that we should let go. So, for example. Uh, it's interesting when you say, you know, it, um, you know, don't wanting to wait, for example, for a certain information to reach decision makers uh, implicates that you give up on control. Uh, and uh, it, this led me think about what uh, companies like Amazon have been doing. Also, for example, by enforcing these black box uh, interfaces between uh, elements in the organization, between units in the organizations. So, the, uh, and this automatically you know, basically it tells you, you don't need to mind the business of the other unit. 
And uh, at the end of the day, if you do this, it's easy to uh, uh, change an existing unit with a third party, you know, uh, another another element from your ecosystem. So, it, 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 so to some extent, if you try to be coherent and not controlling, you automatically evolve into a more ecosystemic organization. What do you think? Yeah. Um, so Jeff Bezos very famously says, you know, the, one of the things we confuse in organizations is the distinction between type one and type two decisions. And he says, you know, type one decisions are very consequential. They're irreversible. Once we've made the decision, we can't easily undo it. Uh, they can have big implications. And those decisions need to be taken with considerable care and thoughtfulness and, and as much rigor as we can put into them. And then there are type two decisions, which are basically reversible, where even if the consequences are negative, it's not, you know, life shattering, it's not devastating. Um, and most importantly, they're reversible, they're sort of like options. And he makes the point that what most organizations do is they're far too eager to put everything in the type one box. So everything gets treated as though it's this, you know, massive, choice that the company has to make. Whereas if you allow people to say, hey, here are, the, here are the characteristics of a type two decision, you can make those kinds of decisions. And it just frees people up to get on with it. And then ideally, what they're doing is they're learning uh, as they go, and they can then share those learnings with others in the organization. I actually, I wanted to, in this context, go also back to the idea that maybe one of the reasons that we want to have and this kind of flexibility inside of organizations uh, to be able to pe for people to make fast decisions, to be able to have a little bit more of, of space of maneuver uh, in their roles is also driven by external factors. And as you have um, written so extensively about uh, this topic of inflection points, uh, we'd love to hear more about how those things relate. So the external environment influencing um, how organizations uh, operate, but also within that broader context, what is changing in the in the relationship between the organization and society, in your point of view? Certainly. So, an inflection point, drawing on Andy Grove's original definition of the concept, is some force that changes by ten x something you have previously taken for granted about your business. Um, and those could take your business to new heights, or they can cause your business to spiral into disaster. Um, but they can't be ignored. And the reason an inflection point so often takes organizations by surprise is that any organization grows up in a particular moment in time. You know, it's born at a particular moment in time. And certain things are possible, and certain things are not. Uh, and it could be because of technology. It could be because of natural circumstances. It could be because of regulation. And what an inflection point does is it changes the nature of those constraints. So it either imposes new constraints or it removes old constraints. Now, if you're in a working, functioning, successful entity, uh, it has developed over the years a recipe for how to operate successfully. So that feeds into its key performance indicators it feeds into organizational processes like budgeting. It feeds into you know what causes people to get promoted and rewarded and, and so forth. And what an inflection point does is it throws all those things into question. So yesterday, you know, <laughs> in the before days, hopping on an airplane to go visit someone because that was the way you did things was perfectly normal. It was unremarkable. Today, that that decision involves a lot more calculations about, you know, is this worth it? Should we do it? And so forth. So just a simple decision like that, it, all of a sudden is a very different kind of decision than it was even a year ago. So I think what an inflection point does is it causes a whole accelerating into you know group of those kinds of decisions to all start to implode upon one each other at the same time now it can lead to great opportunities so we've certainly seen companies such as amazon that have benefited tremendously from the pandemic because it's suddenly taken a whole group of consumers and users who previously maybe weren't that interested in things like grocery deliveries or, or re remote logistics, it's brought them onto its platform. And of course, it's uh, had a devastating effect on other kinds of industries. Anybody that relies on strangers being comfortable in close quarters together uh, is certainly seeing uh, ricocheting negative effects on their business. So that's an inflection point. And um, I think part of the challenge for leaders is how do I develop a broad enough 
perspective on what's going on outside the narrow purview of my organization that I can see where these things are starting to bubble up. Because the other thing I would observe about inflection points is when they come upon us, they feel as though they've emerged instantly, you know, out of the blue. Oh my God, you know, this is just so sudden. And yet if you really look at them, uh, even the pandemic, there were plenty of bits of information that that this this was something that was definitely a possibility. And so one of the problems we have as human beings is we have two big limitations when it comes to apprehending inflection points. The first is we're terrible at exponential phenomena. You know, something that doesn't have a linear progression but has an exponential progression. What we fail to realize, it's it's a bit like the old story of the chessboard, right? There's one grain of rice on the first square and then two grains of rice on the second square, and then four grains of rice on the, you know, the third square, and so on. And by the time you get to the second half of the chessboard, you know, all the rice in the kingdom would need to be consumed to create that on an ongoing basis. And human beings are bad about that. We're also very bad about leading indicators. Um, so information that gives us little clues as to what might be happening, but we often don't see their significance, or we gloss them over, or we, we're just not paying attention. So, uh, with regards to this uh, idea of inflection point, still, you know, the, the the question that I have for you is: uh, to to what extent these inflection points we are living are so important to question the very idea of strategy? You know, because we started to discuss this idea of uh, the strategic playbook and needs to be updated, you know, for this new age. But the question that I would like to to ask: is there something that goes deeper than just uh, changing the playbook. So, I mean, for example, that maybe the priority uh, for organizations may soon uh, become uh, resilience and anti-fragility versus maybe just plain uh, good old market success. And uh, in that case, you know, uh, it's anti-fragility for what? Because uh, we are seeing an economy or, or, you know, a political system like it happened a couple of weeks, well, one week ago in the in the US, you know, with the capital incident and so on. We are seeing these systems now really flickering a bit. So that's my question. Is is in your impression, are we actually about to go deeper in questioning the strategy playbook into something different? So I'm hearing two questions. Uh, one has to do with the role of strategy as as you move forward. And then the other has to do with the systems implications of some of the individual decisions that we make. So let me take those in turn. Um, I believe the role of strategy is more important than ever. Um, you know, if you think about it, what does strategy exist to do? It really just exists to help you make better decisions under conditions of competition and limited resources. So if you buy the idea that you can't do everything well, you know, you've got to make some choices. And a good strategy is simply there to suggest what those choices should be. And whether you're in a very uncertain changing environment or whether you're in something that's more stable, a good strategy should, should serve you well in either context. Um, so that that's strategy. Now let's come to the question of resilience and anti-fragility. Um, Roger Martin has done some wonderful work on this. And what he's pointing out to us is that we have allowed um, local optimization and local efficiencies to create a condition in which the system as a whole is very fragile. And this is something I'm quite passionate about. If, if you look at the post-World War II prosperity, in certainly in the United States, one could also make the argument in Europe and then subsequently in much of Asia, uh, the focus for business in many cases was not so much on maximizing profit as it was on maximizing jobs. And the idea was, you know, you had these people who'd been heavily involved in a global armed conflict. They're all coming home. Uh, nobody wants to go through that again. And so let's think of what it would take to create the undergirdings to a prosperous society. And it was things like, you know, business leaders being held to account for the quality and the number of jobs that they created, where they would actually hire more people than they strictly speaking needed, but it created a system with more buffers, right? Uh, it, it involved uh, corporations reinvesting rather than extracting money and giving it to shareholders. Uh, it involved, you know, many, many, many dozens of, of individualistic decisions, which said, you know, we are going to sacrifice some short-term optimization for the greater good of the system as a whole. As a whole. And that was a philosophy that was very dominant post-war through the 60s, I would say, right up into the 70s. And what started to happen then was uh, some real 
the real things and some what I would call ideological things. Uh, the real things that did happen was you did start to see the first effects of globalization. You did start to see the first ability to export routine jobs. You did start to see automation kicking in, uh, taking over jobs that were sort of low-level routine kind of things. But you also had an ideology that shifted. And the ideology said, look, rather than running organizations for the benefit of the whole society, we're going to run organizations with a particular focus on profits and particularly a focus on shareholder profits. And it was a philosophy that became very popular. And it was used to justify all kinds of rollbacks of worker protections, labor protections, um, you know, social contract kind of kind of arguments, and, 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 and. Um, and I think where we are and what the pandemic has really brought home is that we are now in a situation where we've got dramatic inequality, which is a direct result of these profit-seeking, shareholder-sensitive policies. Um, and what we know about inequality, and this, is, this has been well studied, is the societies that have massive inequality tend to be much more violent, much more fragile. Uh, much less resilient. Uh, you tend to see the kinds of political divisions that were all too uh, readily on display last week. Um, and you've also got competition among the, what what uh, there's a scholar called Peter Turchin who studies this stuff. And he said, what you've got is too many elites looking for the same jobs. <laughs> so, you know, there's still only one president. There's still, at least in the United States, there's still only 435 members of Congress. And yet you've got so many more of these elites because the income and wealth that's flowed upward in the society has just produced many, many more of them relative to everybody else. And so what that basically leads to is a situation of conflict when people who feel justifiably in many cases that the society has not been designed to help them participate in its prosperity, latch onto these disaffected leaders. Um, and that's where you can create these enormous amounts of divisiveness. When listening to you, Rita, talking, I, I just uh, came to mind this idea when you, you you were talking about this shift in in the sense of purpose or raison d'être for companies. Uh, and we've had previous organizations about also the role of exponential technologies within that. So as the more you sort of manage to speed up transactions, the harder it gets to sort of be close to your constituents in a way, uh, whereas maybe in that post-war period, uh, at least initially, the organizations were much more entangled in local communities in which they were they were engaged and operating. Um, so what are your thoughts on that in the digital transformation? Can we still have that model? And do you have ideas on on how to reconstruct that that link between the company and and the community that in which it's embedded. Yeah, and I think digital is a neutral tool in that. I think digital can accelerate it or digital can decelerate it. It depends on how you use the tool as in any tool. When it comes to organizations being embedded in their communities. So here's here's a perspective. Um if your underlying society is ultimately going to fall victim to armed conflict, uh, you know, undemocratic institutions, the rule of dictators, you know, I'm sorry, you as a profit-making business are going to have a lot of problems. You'd probably much rather exist in a society that didn't have those characteristics. So at a, a very macro level, the interests of, of business organizations and the interests of community organizations are very well aligned. You know, what you want is a functioning society where there's rule of law and there's property rights and people abide by certain rules. And, uh, you know, there's an infrastructure to make sure that you can conduct business without unduly worrying about corruption or, or other things. So at a, at a high level, uh, you know, it makes sense that, that organizations would be very concerned about the health of their communities. At a more macro level, um, you know, most organizations are still in some kind of physical place, you know, unless you're producing a purely di digital offering, which some do. But even then, you know, you've got a physical place, you've got to have your data centers, you've got to have the you are physically in the world somewhere. And so to the extent that those places are healthy places with a clean environment with, uh, you know, your workers interested and willing to live there with decent education systems with decent healthcare systems, you know, all of these things work together. And I think where we get into trouble is when we create 
a set of incentives where certain organizations feel that they can socialize their costs and you know capture the profits for themselves and and benefit that way. So there's a great example that Jeffrey Pfeffer uses of the city of San Francisco, which basically got fed up with so many companies there basically not providing their employees with adequate health care. And so they said, look, we're, we're starting a thing, I think it was called Healthy San Francisco. And either you will pay a tax on your earnings and we will set up these healthcare systems to take care of your people, or you will provide your people with adequate healthcare, or there was one other option. But in any case, they basically said that companies should have to pay for the health of their employees. They should not be allowed to externalize that cost. But if you're going to hire a person, you need to keep that person healthy was their basic position. And of course, business screamed and carried on and waved and ranted and da-da-da. And uh, so two or three years go by, what happens? Did business stop setting up in San Francisco? No, it's one of the most desirable places in the world to have a business. Did companies go bankrupt? No. <laughs> you know, um, Yes, they made maybe a little bit less profit that, that would have gone into, into the healthcare pocket. But the flip side was that people were getting seen now. People who've never had access to healthcare in their lives were now getting treated much earlier. The burden to the whole system had lessened. And uh, most importantly, the, the emergency infrastructure for San Francisco's hospitals wasn't under the same kind of strain because what happened was people without access would wait until they were desperately, desperately ill. And then, you know, they show up at the emergency room and you've got multiple very expensive things to now deal with. And so it's an example to me of, of how you need to think about where are the costs being borne and what is a fair way for a business to uh, be able to live in society in with a business model that can support their expenses? I mean, another very interesting example that's playing out now is this this whole thing about gig economy workers. You know, Uber would be an example. Um, and being said, no, 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 they're not employees. Well, I can buy that. I mean, I can see where some of our older uh, regulations around employment. I mean, I know myself, I've had employees and it's a pain in the neck. Uh, not because I don't want to spend the money, but it's just, it's such an administrative and, and horrible, it's just awful to have to do it. The, 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 the bureaucracy and paperwork is terrible. On the other hand, that doesn't dissolve the principle of saying, if you're going to hire a human being to work for you, you have certain responsibilities to the society in which that human being lives that you can't just foist off on society to deal with. You have to take some responsibility. And however we work that principle out in whatever the new employment contract becomes, I think it's really, really important to do that. Because ultimately, if businesses don't do that, what they're essentially doing is shifting costs and responsibilities that feed their business model to the communities around them. I mean, that's a very interesting place to have this discussion, to be honest, because I think you are really getting there to some of the key questions of organizing of the 21st century. You know? Because when you, uh, for example, in some of your recent pieces, you have been uh, hinting into uh, the role of policymakers. If, I don't, if I'm not wrong, it was where you were talking again about these gig, uh, gig economy workers and you... Uh, or platforms in general, and you uh, were talking about this idea to enforce multi-homing in the consumer. No? So, uh, some, some, uh, you know, I would say some policy uh, moves that can, to some extent, uh, uh, generate specific outcomes into how platforms behave and implement their services in society. So, to some extent, there is an hint into a future that is made of more interaction between brands and policymakers, which is also what Ben Evans, you know, has been talking about uh, in the last year, speaking about the, the, the age of regulation, not the next technological age being actually an age of regulation because internet gets everywhere. So, so, so my, my, my question would be, um, uh, is there a possibility that actually politics and I must, I must say, very specific and local politics. So I would say maybe a state in the US or a particular state in the Union, in the European Union, can uh, enforce certain requirements onto businesses. Uh, is it really a re-regionalization even of businesses and, and their impacts, uh, a potential outcome of these uh, uh, you know, new evolutions that we're seeing in society and the world of business? I mean, certainly, the, you know, capitalism left to its own devices is an amoral way of organizing an economy. It doesn't it doesn't have first principles baked into it. It basically says, you know, you've got a buyer and a seller. And if they can come to terms about a transaction, we'll have the transaction happen. And, you know, those that uh, that, that 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 use those transactions to mediate between labor 
the ownership of the means of production and the owners of capital can sort of figure it out. But capitalism can produce terrible outcomes. Um, you know, what people constantly, and this is where, you know, people take the position that markets can solve everything. I'm sorry, markets can't solve everything. So some very specific places where capitalism fails are when a benefit is highly concentrated, but a harm is broadly distributed, markets fail. So if I'm a polluter and I make you know a mountain of money by imposing harm on the environment, you and I and our 15 friends in our immediate family suffer a little bit of harm. You know, oh, gee, it's not so nice out today as it was the other day, but there's no specific thing that it ruins our lives. And yet the person that is doing the polluting experiences a great deal of profit from that, right? So that's one case. Another case is where the harm is... is uh, uh, very heavily concentrated, but upon people who are fun fundamentally powerless, and the benefit is sort of broadly accrued to the greater greater good. You know, and that's a case where you've got a, a few people suffering very badly, and and most of us sort of moderately benefiting. So there's no real hue and cry because the people that are suffering are powerless. So an example there would be um, back in the '60s, the way that the government basically tore up a lot of poor neighborhoods to put highways through for the benefit of, you know automobiles and trucking interests. Um, and there was no real hue and cry because the people being negatively affected were very concentrated and very powerless. So those are just two examples of where capitalism fails. So when you think about the states making interventions, there are many interventions currently being made um, in the United States, certainly. And one of the cool things about the U.S., there's a lot that's wrong with it, but this is one of the cool things about it is we're like a Petri dish for hundreds and hundreds of social experiments all over the place. Um, so there are states that have already uh, imposed a minimum wage raise, so to $15 an hour, which is still by historical standards very low. I mean, if minimum wages had kept pace with inflation since the post-war period, they'd be in the $40 range, not the $15 range. So that's one. Another one that I think is fascinating that's playing out right now is many states have now said, we're going to go for what's called approval voting, so ranked preference voting, in which you can't have, say, two dominant party candidates and a third party candidate comes along who's a spoiler, and it's a winner-take-all vote situation. In ranked choice voting, what happens is you know, everybody votes, but they vote for their top choice, and then there are other choices that they can, can kind of live with. And if a particular candidate doesn't um, achieve a majority on the first go around, what ends up happening is the lower candidate, the, the one that gets the least votes, gets knocked out. And those votes get redistributed to that candidate's second tier preferences, right? So, um, so it's a little bit more complicated, but the collective effect of this is to create conditions in which candidates, instead of trying to splinter voters and appealing to increasingly polarized bases, now what they're doing is they're saying, wait a minute, I better appeal to the moderate voter because, you know, my opponent's voters could become my voters if, uh, if, if depending on how the situation plays out. So it's a electoral system that mitigates against polarization. And uh, I was very encouraged that in Alaska, they've just voted this in. And one of Alaska's senators, Lisa Murkowski, has just said, look, you know, if, if my party isn't willing to be a lot more clear-headed and sensible about the kinds of policies they're going to support, uh, I perhaps don't need to be part of that party. But I think part of what makes that possible is she can now appeal to the voters directly without it being a winner-take-all situation. And so let's say, you know, she might not be any one particular candidate's number one, or, or she might not be the majority's number one candidate, but she, if she's everybody's number two preference, she's got a much better chance of winning than in other situations. So I think there are structural things that you can do that create the conditions under which more just economic choices get made. So before maybe touching the last point that uh, we wanted to, to touch uh, with regards to how actually organizations can get closer to where these phenomena are. But uh, I would like to ask you uh, a reflection around uh, the idea that uh, and the interplay that uh, these uh, evolution in organizations and companies has with uh, the conversation on politics and uh, uh, social media and uh, uh, dissent and, con and consensus forming on, on social media, which, uh, uh, you know, for example, uh, things such as uh, QAnon or uh, that kind of uh, uh, discussion on the politics. So the question that I would like to ask is if, if uh, really the space of uh, policymaking becomes so important, uh, then uh, you know probably it's not something we can be uh, we can vote through 
it's something that we can we really need to implement in terms of not just policies but also entrepreneurial activities and and and, and businesses so 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 the question is uh, uh, do you see this uh, i would say um, porous conversations uh, between the new politics and a new discussion that is happening on the social media for example and the world of business in terms of uh, creating this uh, collaboration also with local institutions yeah i so a couple of things that i think are worth recognizing one of the effects of digital has been to create the conditions under which large amounts of data that used to be safely locked away in manual files uh, we can now connect them and so with very little effort you know we can now connect your cell phone records with your medical records with your uh, you know real estate records with other records that were previously you know set i mean we could do it before but it was it was hard it was effortful there was friction so one of the things that these new communications technologies have done is that they've reduced a lot of these frictions and what that creates is systemic interdependency because now you know instead of oh well you know the housing the mortgage record went into a big file in the county courthouse and if i wanted to find it i could but i had to go to the county courthouse call for that file get it up you know now it can be connected with a flick of a switch and so what that produces is complexity um and when well, the difference between complicated and complex is you know a, a Boeing 747 is a very complicated thing it's about 4 million moving parts but you know what those parts are going to do with a complex system you don't know so i think the first uber observation i would make is that we have allowed complexity to occur without really comprehending what the consequences could be so if i take that specifically to social media and i've been very public about this which is we have sleepwalked our way into allowing these companies to monetize and in many cases weaponize personal data for the benefit of a business model that to me is socially a very dubious thing <laughs> you know like is the benefit that i get advertised uh you know a pair of rubber boots when it's raining outside is that such a social good that we would give up you know just enormous amounts of expectations of uh privacy safety you know other other real public goods so i've said for a long time i thought this business model was going to be um in big trouble i mean i said that in the beginning of my book um in 2019 um that you know it it it, it people don't understand and uh and just as an evidence of this um all apple did when they introduced their latest iphone was they said well we want people to actually acknowledge that they're willing to give up their data and facebook totally freaked out because they said well people aren't going to do that and my position on that is look if your users don't don't approve of your business model and you're pursuing that business model anyway i mean doesn't that sort of tell you there's something wrong here <laughs> that you know people should have a choice so i think that's one big big thing um second thing that i think is is a corollary it's not necessarily a, a, a irrevocable outcome but we now are in a situation where facts are not respected as such to an extent i've certainly never seen in my life that you know we've had a, a series of people saying that fake news and the facts aren't the facts and this and that i mean and that's always been there in the you know i mean there's always some human judgment in what's a fact what's truth what's not but as a society if we're going to move forward you know science is science scientists look at facts and try to make up their minds from facts uh there are other things that are or they're not you know the rule of law depends on a common recognition of reality and so one of the things i think we'll likely see is as we have really stared into the abyss of what a fact-free polity looks like that people are going to get a lot more al alarmed about people you know lots of human beings living in their individual thought bubbles with their own belief systems that have absolutely nothing to do with what reality is and i think that's very worrying as we move on towards uh, the late part of this conversation we wanted to see so it seems like to some extent we are do we're not doing a great job at the moment we've kind of been taken by surprise maybe the, about how this complexity is is creating feedback loops that are not coming back at us so if we can go back to how do we get closer to this phenomenon of uh, exponentiality and get better at dealing with the early signals maybe for in inflection points and how can we organize within this now growing complexity that we are facing Yeah, so I think the first thing to realize and and Roger Martin again points this out. He says, you know, efficiency is not always better. 
that there are times when we acknowledge there's a benefit to inefficiency where you know having gatekeepers having grit in the system having some things that require uh you know a, a breaker um make make sense and so examples there would be you know in many of these super hyper rapid markets you you've got breaks when it passes a certain threshold for example stock trading right there's 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 a breaker to automatic trading when certain thresholds are passed same thing with electrical grids right when there's a certain kind of demand the grid will automatically shut off parts of itself to protect the others so i think we're going to take that concept of breakers and think about where else might that be necessary and you know a little a little example of this is when Twitter and Facebook basically said we're you know we're going to deplatform some of these calls to violence because there's just too many of them and we can't control them so we're just going to take them off our platform that's to me an example of a breaker right and so i think we're going to have to think very hard about where do we put in these frictions where do we put in these breakers because left to their own devices these things get ahead of us and we can't really control them so i think that's one category of things that i could think would be very very interesting. Secondly is we really need um to look at systems as a whole, right? And understand and this is something I'm playing around with possibly for my next book which is our human ability to perceive the way a whole system fits together is pretty limited. And yet if you apply some of the, the disciplines of what sometimes called social systems thinking or systems dynamics, you can start to really see how all the pieces fit together. It's just we don't often take the time to do that what we do is we focus on i'll call them local optima you know we'll focus on a local thing that we react to we don't really see the whole system as, as it as it throws out unforeseen sort of unexpected results rita if uh, we think about uh, the future of organizing you know, what is the space that we really need to look into to see you know the first signs you know i would say where is when should we focus at least in your from your point of view as a, as a last point to uh, identify uh, uh, how the future of organizing is going to unfold well i think i think part of it is is understanding where value um is moving that as you have illustrated with your work that increasingly value is moving from product features ownership to interactions transactions community you know and experiences and so i think once we figure out where value is traveling that will give us some insight into how we want to organize to produce that value um and i also think you know we're all everyone on the planet has a mutual interest in making sure that the place where we live is going to be here when our children grow up you know um and so i think there's a lot of external pressures which are also going to be put on mechanisms for uh organizing and i'm i'm an optimist you know i i believe that every wave of new technology and i put social media as one of those waves you know they all have things that they do that are great and then they have things they do that are not so great and as we learn about them and it takes a long time you know if you look at any new communication or connection technology it, it takes a long time before we really understand what it means so if you go all the way back to the telegraph you know the fact that you could get a message across the world you know a very crude message a very rough message but that you could get a message across the world dramatically brought the world uh, closer when you look at the movies right movie recording when the movies were first invented people didn't know what they were so they they filmed stage plays and they thought the real value of a movie was you know to be able to watch a stage play later on I mean, without the live actors being there and it took it took about 40 years before all the 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 techniques we associate with modern filmmaking came to be and i think we're going to find the same kinds of things with modern communication technologies that you know these platforms and to some extent you know to a lesser extent things like slack and and these you know um uh, very uh, yammer and the, the other communications platforms it'll take a while before we figure out how best to harness them and how best to use them and i think with social media we're still in a very early stage i mean i remember when facebook was still uh, you know you had to have an edu email address to join facebook and i did because i was a professor and my kids were horrified they were like mom this is for teenagers what are you doing on facebook and of course now the main facebook platform their main signups are from people who are in their 60s <laughs> so you know that as that platform matures and ages we're starting to learn about where are we comfortable with how it's evolved and where are we not comfortable and that may precipitate changes just as the changes around Microsoft's platform uh, took place in the 90s that you know we're starting now to realize and it takes as I said it takes institutions a long time to catch up with what's technologically possible so when you think about what organizing is going to look like i think we need to look at where value is flowing 
how we're going to change the rules of the game so that more socially desirable outcomes are produced and fewer socially undesirable ones are produced. Uh, and then what did the new technologies allow us to do that we could never do before? You know, I'm, one of the more interesting things, I think, is, is collaboration as we're doing now, you know, virtually um, is so much more possible than it ever was before. You know, I, I, I mean, I've been very encouraged by that. People all over the world can now really work together in a way that couldn't be if you all had to get on airplanes and go somewhere. So there's some really bright, interesting ideas coming out of this as well. Well, the conversation was so, so uh, great, I think, in doing one thing, in pointing out uh, how uh, hard it is to crack this code of uh, the future of organizing. So I think we need to also acknowledge that uh, in, the, in the great conversation that we had the range so far. No? So I think it's uh, testifying you know, the depth of this uh, rabbit hole of the future of organizing. So, uh, I mean, from my point of view, that was, again, an amazing conversation. Uh, so one thing that I would like to ask you is just to share with us uh, uh, where we should look for your most recent work and if you have anything to suggest to our listeners uh, uh, in terms of uh, your recent work, uh, where can they find it? Sure. So the best place to start is probably my website, which is ritamagrath.com. Just very simple. And on there, you'll find links to a lot of what I do. Uh, this, uh, since the pandemic, I've been doing regular Friday fireside chats with people who I think are interesting or provocative or have a useful point of view. And those are free and you can just log on on my website and uh, and, and register for them. And then um, they're, they're live and then we re record them afterwards. And so they're on my YouTube channel and, you know, terrific guests. I mean, really interesting people, people who run companies, people who are academics, people who are, you know, well-known business personalities. So it's been, that's been a fun thing that the pandemic has made possible. And um, then people can definitely follow me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I've got a Medium column that, that I write. So you, the best place to start is really the website and then all these others spring out from there. Well, thank you very much again. Estina, do you want to add something more? No, I echo you. Thank you very much. It was a very interesting conversation. Great. Thank you again. And to our listeners, catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, or connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform and ecosystem strategies in these turbulent times. We also want to thank Valta Mobilia Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.